So we have been talking about, starting this year, that at Agape, we exist to love and worship the Lord sincerely, that we exist to care for the spiritual health of one another in the church, and we exist to fulfill the charge that Jesus gave us to make disciples. We've been talking about the last couple of weeks that second purpose of how we love one another and how we care for one another in the church to help each other spiritually grow. And today we're beginning to turn our attention toward another one of our purposes, the highest purpose that we have, the one that is to love and worship God sincerely. And for the next several weeks, we are going to be examining the letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches that existed in and around 100 A.D., and our, our hope, the prayer is that as we examine these letters that were written and we see how Jesus encouraged and even corrected those churches that existed in that time and that day, that we, Agape Church, would learn from these letters ourselves and we would learn how we might abide stronger in Christ and the love of Christ so that we can accomplish the purpose he's, purposes He's given us, taking care of one another and making disciples. These letters, these seven letters, are contained within a larger book, the book of Revelation, which is a series of visions that was given to the Apostle John. John, probably familiar with him, but John is described in the Bible as the one Jesus loved, which is... Fairly interesting when you understand that, of course, Jesus loved all of his disciples and he loved all of his followers that were outside of that group of 12 and he loved all people in a very general way. Yet, John is said to be the one Jesus loved, which shows us that apparently Jesus had a very special, familiar bond and love with John. After the resurrection of Jesus, John became a leader in the early church. He wrote five letters in the New Testament, and he provided oversight for many different congregations. By the time we get to this book of Revelation, this letter of Revelation that was, we believe, the last book written in what we have as the canon of Scripture, by the time we get there, At the close of the first century, John is likely in his 90s, and he is the only apostle still alive. And he writes to these churches who are going to receive this letter, and he refers to himself, as we saw in the text that Mike just read for us, he refers to himself as their brother and their partner in tribulation which tells us that that early church is suffering through difficulties, times of trials. Now, we spent time last year in First and Second Peter, and we certainly saw trials and persecution that the church was going through in that day. But this is around 30 years later that John is writing this letter of Revelation. And what is happening in 
these final years of John's life is that Rome is being ruled by an emperor named Domitian. Domitian reigned for about 15 years over Rome, and his reign was characterized by one primary thing. He insisted on being worshipped. As a matter of fact, he demanded that people refer to him as our Lord and God. For the first time in the Roman history, although many of the other emperors had kind of seen themselves as a figure that should be worshipped, but for the first time in Roman history, when you get to Domitian, failure to honor the emperor as a god was actually punishable by law. That if you didn't do it, you would be punished. And Christians found themselves being persecuted for the first time from a state level, wide-ranging persecution if they failed to worship Domitian, if they failed to follow the religion of Rome. Christians were presented with a choice. Follow paganism, worship the emperor, or risk your freedom, or even worse. And John certainly suffered in this tribulation himself, and because of his faithfulness to continue preaching Christ and to refuse to bow and worship Domitian, John suffered. And part of that suffering was he was sent to a very tiny island, about 15 square miles large, called Patmos. And there he was to serve a sentence of exile. And what we are told in the text that we read today is that on a particular Sunday, as John is on this island that houses criminals from Rome, he is worshiping on the Lord's day. On a Sunday, just like we are, he is worshiping, perhaps in a cave. Patmos was a very rocky, rugged island with many caves. He may have been in one. Perhaps he is praying. Singing, maybe he is reciting scripture that he can remember, but he is worshiping in the spirit of the Lord. We don't know how many Sundays he had been on this island at this point, but we do know on this particular Sunday, something remarkable happened. John hears behind him a voice. Perhaps it has a ring of familiarity to him, a voice certainly sounds different, but one that he hasn't heard in some 60-odd years. And he turns around and he sees a vision of his friend and his Lord, Jesus. And John knows that it's Jesus, but it's very clear that Jesus looks nothing like what he looked the last time John saw him six decades earlier. Jesus is no longer clothed in earthly humility. He is no longer the meek and mild Jesus that walked the earth during his ministry. This is a Jesus mighty, clothed in his glory, and ready to judge the nations. The eyes of fire, the feet of bronze, as John describes them, were Old Testament symbols of judgment. 
This is a much different Jesus in terms of His appearance. Maybe He looks similar to what John briefly saw on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospels when John was one of the three apostles allowed to briefly see Jesus in His glory on that mountain. But nevertheless, John struggles to describe what he sees. If you read verse 13 through 16, what Mike gave to us a moment ago, you see that John continually uses the word like. His hair was like wool or like snow, his eyes like flames, his feet like bronze, his voice like a roar, his face like the sun. John is grasping at words to try and communicate to us this image, making comparisons to things that we can understand. And Jesus, as John has this vision, speaks to his friend. And he speaks these words that every believer who is going through a trial or going through a difficulty needs to hear. He speaks words that every person who mourns over the evil of our world, who suffers from persecution because of their faith, who struggles every day with the seductive temptations of sin, he speaks the words that we need to hear. Don't be afraid. Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and hell. This is a clear statement by Jesus of authority. To those believers in the first century, it was a very clear statement. Church, Domitian does not have dominion. I do. You are being told to worship him or lose your freedom because he thinks he's God. No, I'm God. I am the first and I am the last. And life and death and heaven and hell comes through me, not Domitian. For us, we can take out Domitian in that statement and we can put in its place whatever makes us feel like exiles. It is not fear. It is not pain. It is not idols. It is not temptations. It is not hate. It is not regret that has ultimate power over us. If we believe upon Christ, Jesus is sovereign over everything. He's the first, He's the last. And He has the keys to life and death and heaven and hell. So we look to Christ. He is able to meet us and free us. Rome thought they were punishing John. Go to this island, John, away from everything familiar, away from everything you know. Go and suffer. And Jesus waited till that moment to meet John in the most remarkable way and give to him words 
that would last for centuries and centuries and centuries and build people up. With all of that in mind as our context, what I want us to do today as kind of an introduction to these seven letters that we're going to explore over the next several weeks, I want us to see some key ideas or some big ideas that come through in this text from this morning. And, and I want you, if you will, if you're a note taker, I'd like for you to put these key ideas we talk about today somewhere where you can get a hold of it. And as we walk through these seven letters over the next several weeks, I want you to keep going back to these key ideas and remembering them. They're very simple, but they're things that we need to remember as we walk through these letters because what we want to do again is we want to learn from Jesus as he writes to his church. And we want to learn what he is saying to us, agape, in 2022 as he was speaking to these churches in 100 A.D. And so I think if we can hold on to these key ideas as we walk through each one of these letters, it will help us in our quest to learn from Christ. So three key ideas that come out to us in Revelation 1 in the text that we read just a moment ago. And if you're a note-taker, you can jot these down in one of the worship guides. Hopefully you picked one of those up from the back table. Three big ideas or three key ideas. Big idea number one, our church is to shine light in the area God has placed us. One of the things that is very clear through the symbolism of Revelation 1 is that our church, I'm personalizing it, agape, we are called to shine light in the area God has placed us. So what we see in this text in Revelation 1 is that as Jesus meets John, he commissions him to write letters. Seven letters to seven churches. And Jesus uses, chooses to use some very specific imagery. The imagery of a lampstand. When John first turns around and sees Jesus, he sees him walking among lampstands. And Jesus later tells John, those lampstands represent my church. And it wasn't just one lampstand for the universal church, but it was multiple lampstands, one for each church that would receive a letter from Jesus through John. One lampstand for each congregation. And Jesus is in the midst of those lampstands. So this whole picture shows us, as one commentator put it, that the church is to bear light of the presence of God in a darkened world. We are to bear light, the light of the presence of Christ, and we are to bear that light to a darkened world. And it can be inferred that God has planned for that light-giving work to happen through each individual church that He commissions. So wherever there is a congregation that is assembled, in any place and any time, God intends 
for that congregation to shine the light of the presence of Jesus where He has placed them. Now, in His authority, their light may go beyond where He has placed them. But it is certainly, certainly to shine where He has placed them. This is not in my notes, just something that came to my mind, but one of the difficulties of the culture that we have now, there's many graces to the culture that we have, and churches able to, especially larger churches, able to get a message of Christ out to many people. But one of the challenges that we have is sometimes churches and pastors and preachers, they get really focused on that very large audience of trying to amass as many people as they can who will listen to them. And sometimes I think that is done at the expense of right of the area right where God has planted them. Where their lampstand is, is where God intends for them to begin their light shining work. Now, how do we shine light? Good question. You may remember Jesus gave us an answer to that in Matthew 5, verse 16. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see or in their seeing of your good works, they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The imagery that we used last week was of a tree being rooted and growing up. That's the church being rooted and growing up together to bear fruit, fruit of godly character and godly works. And here... In Revelation, we have the picture of a lampstand that is supposed to burn brightly where God has placed it. And what are we shining? We're shining good fruit, godly character, and godly works so that people can see the presence of Jesus and be drawn to Him. Now, agape, there is nobody who's been here for any length of time that disagreed with anything I just said you are all going to nod your head at that. My question to us is, are we doing it, and how do we do it better? Are we shining the light of the presence of Christ so that people can see good character and good works and glorify Him in a darkened world? And that question is not just, Okay, what are the leaders of the church doing, and, and what do they want me to do to be involved in that? The church corporately is made up of all of us individually, so it begins with us. One of the things that you're going to hear me stress this year, that we're going to lead into through this series, is personal evangelism. The personal stake we have wherever we go, wherever we are, the people that we have an opportunity to meet every single day, every week, every month. And what are we doing to shine the light of the presence of Jesus to them? I want, I want us to wrestle with that question. How are we doing that? How do we do it better? I want us to wrestle with that question as a church. Corporately, I want us to wrestle with that question as individuals. And I don't want to wait till April and May to wrestle with that question. I want to ask it now. Think about it now. You're going to encounter people this week who need the light of the presence of Jesus. So key idea number one, we are to shine light in the area God has placed us. 
key idea or a big idea number two. Jesus is present in his churches, intimately aware of each congregation's traits and needs. Jesus is present in his churches, and he has an intimate awareness of every one of his congregation's traits and needs. One of the things that you're going to see, you're going to see it next week in Revelation 2, is that having a lampstand as a church is not a right. It's a privilege. Jesus actually is going to say in the first letter he writes to the first church, I need you to do these things and repent of these things that have gone wrong, or I may remove your lampstand. I don't know that every church that closes, closes because of sin, but I do know that God chooses when to plant churches and cause them to shine and when to close them down. And it's not a guaranteed right that we get to burn brightly. It is a privilege that we do. I want us to see it that way here at Agape. This picture in verse 13 in Revelation 1 is that Jesus is among the lampstands. He's among the churches. He's not distanced from them. He's not disconnected from them. He is present with them and he is aware of them. When he gets to writing these letters, he writes very specific words and he says to these churches, I know this about you, I know that about you. It is not just some high off view that he has. He knows agape. He knows us. He is among us. He's aware of us. He knows what words of encouragement we need. He knows what words of admonishment we need. He is intimately familiar with every congregation. He knows their strengths. He knows their weaknesses. He knows the specific challenges that they face. And he also knows the specific opportunities that they have. And he loves every one of his churches that make up the universal church, and he cares for them. And he wants those churches to burn brightly. The light of the presence of God. And so he speaks. He speaks that we might listen and that we might learn how to do that, how to burn brightly for Him where He has placed us. And we know that we can learn that from these letters. And we know that because the way God chose to do this was Jesus commissions John to write these seven specific letters to seven specific churches. They were not the only churches that existed in that time. Not the only churches that existed in Asia Minor where these letters were going to travel. But he chose seven specific churches. He didn't choose the biggest either. You'll kind of see that as we get into the letters. He chose big churches, smaller churches, some rich churches, some poor churches. But then he collects all of them in this larger letter of Revelation, and he has it all sent, which means that every church got to read the other church's mail. And he did that, I believe, because every church could learn from what he is saying 
to each individual congregation. And He has ordained for us to be able to do that today. For us to be able to read these letters and learn, He is able to place upon our hearts what He wants us to know at Agape in 2022 through His Word. Jesus is present with Agape. He is aware of our traits and our needs. It is not a right that we have a lampstand. It is a privilege. And we need to listen to what he says to us in our spirit, which brings us to big idea number three. Jesus rewards humility with his personal reassurance and favor. Jesus rewards humility, and he rewards humility with his personal reassurance and favor. This week I was involved in a couple of very difficult conversations, both of them with people outside of our church. And both of those conversations that I was asked to give some input to were situations that were either caused by or inflamed by someone's pride. And it was very obvious to me the pride that existed that was stirring up difficulty in these two situations. What is usually not as clear to me is my, is my own pride. And the reality is every one of us in this room deals with pride in some form. Pride causes us to say, I'm good. I don't really need your words of correction, friend. I don't really need you to speak into my life. I don't really need you to listen. I don't really need to listen to you about what you want to say to me. I don't have blind spots. Pride tells us that being transparent is being weak. That if you tell people you're struggling, if you tell people that you're going through a difficult time, it's weakness. Pride causes us to compare ourselves with others rather than to compare ourselves to God. Pride causes us to look at other people and say, I'm not that bad. And we forget that the standard that God uses to judge is not the standard of other people. It's His standard. Pride will keep us from seeing that we need grace. That every day of our life, to exist and live, to bear fruit, we need grace. Pride makes us think it's everybody else around us that needs grace and mercy, and not us. Pride causes us to assume we have all the right answers all the time. And pride often leads us to be harsh with others and have little empathy. Pride causes us to see our lives and what we have and the influence and the material and say, I did that. I built that. I gained that. That's mine. Charles Spurgeon wrote, The more I have, 
the more I am in debt to God. And I should never be proud of that which makes me a debtor. What a strange infatuation that we who have borrowed everything should ever think of exalting ourselves. Pride is a self-orienting destroyer. It destroys our marriages, our families, our churches, and pride destroys worship. Pride is that thing in us right now going, when is he going to stop talking about pride? Pride destroys even worship because pride causes us to think of Jesus as merely our friend and our confidant. And he is. He is. Jesus is our friend and confidant when we have faith in Him. But He is so much more than that. And the reason I think, if you're asking, wait a minute, where does pride come from in this picture? Is because we see the opposite of that in John. You remember that old song? I say old. It's from years ago. It was very popular. I forgot the band's name. But it was called, I Can Only Imagine. Mercy me, thank you. And and it actually it was, it was a great song. It actually got a lot of airplay on um, the radio, secular radio. But the song talks about, I can only imagine what will happen when I see Jesus. Will I do this? Will I dance? Will I do this? I don't even remember what all he, they walked through. Here's what John says. You are going to fall down dead. You are going to see Jesus and you are going to collapse. You're not going to be able to talk. You're, you're not going to be able to think. You're going to collapse like you were dead. Because I'll tell you something, if John did that, John was the beloved disciple. You can make the case that of every human being who ever lived, John was the closest to Jesus. You can make that case. And John tells us, not some other author writing about John, but John tells us that when he turned around and he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet like a man who had just collapsed and died. There was no boasting. There was no Jesus, I'm so glad to see you. Let me tell you all I've done. Let me tell you how badly I've been treated. He just fainted in front of it. A flat, silent collapse. But what did Jesus do next? He goes to John. And the Bible is specific. He takes his right hand which is the hand that represents power and favor. And he places his right hand on John, and he says, John, don't be afraid. The Bible tells us in Proverbs that God tears down the house of the proud. But his favor is on the humble. The humble will fall at the feet of Jesus as Lord. And the humble will feel Jesus place His right hand on them and say, don't be afraid. 
get up. I have something I want you to do. That's what he told John. Agape, there is a lot for us to learn. It was the first piece of advice I was given when I was ordained as a pastor by the guy that was here at the time who was my mentor. He said, if you remember anything I tell you, remember this, never stop being teachable. Because the moment you think you don't have anything to learn, you have lost the right to be a pastor of anyone else. Pride will tear us down individually, and pride will tear us down corporately. But humility invites for us the favor of Jesus. Our hope as a church should not be, let's be the biggest, let's be the best. Our hope should be, let's be the most humble. How do we be the most humble congregation that we can be? Because when we do that, we are inviting the favor of the Lord, and whatever He chooses to do with us, He chooses to do with us. It's His choice. We trust Him with the results. For some of us in this room, or maybe on this replay, maybe you're listening to this years from now, it may mean that for the very first time you need to humble yourself in confession that your life displeases God. That if you compare yourself with others, you might be okay, but when you compare yourself to a perfect and holy Creator, you know you fall short. And the Bible says that if you will call out to Jesus to save you from that state of pride, to save you from that state of sin, he promises that He will hear you and that He will answer. For some of us, it may mean that we need to lay aside our stubbornness and we have to admit that we have strayed and we need Jesus and we need His church now more than we ever have because pride is destroying us and pride is destroying what we hold dear. And today, if we will confess that, Jesus will grant us His right hand on our shoulder and He will reassure us and He will bless us. I tell people this all the time when I'm talking to them and they're struggling with their faith. You are not as far from Jesus as you think you are. You may remember where you were at one point in time and it may seem a million miles away or a million years ago. And it is, it is profound but as simple as turning in repentance, and He's right there. Agape, Jesus, is among us. I want us to remember these three big ideas. I want us to remember that Jesus is among us as we go through these seven letters. He knows us. He knows everything about us. And He has placed us in central Alabama to burn brightly. That's what He wants us to do. And we have a lot to learn if we're going to do that. So I'm praying that you will take this opportunity, take these key ideas, and over the next several ask, the next several weeks, ask this question: What is the letter Jesus is writing to us? Start with your life and your family. What would be the letter Jesus would write to me? Jesus, what would you say to me? 
And then as a church, what is Jesus saying to us? That is a question that the leadership here needs to ask, but we're not the only people that need to ask that question. We're not the only people in the church that God will give words to about the church. So let's ask those questions. If you'll notice in your handout this week's prayer focus, we have a prayer focus every Sunday, and it's for the upcoming week. This week's prayer focus comes from 1 Samuel 3, what Tamara read to us to start the service today. It's very interesting to me that in that text, it says that in Samuel's day, the word of the Lord was rare. In Samuel's day, the visions, the word of God was rare. This is the second time in this young year that our prayer focus is going to be around asking Jesus to speak to us. But I think it's that important. We are asking that it would not be true of us, that it would be rare that God speaks. Now, I know absolutely God speaks through His Word. That is the primary way God speaks to us. But I also believe that God at times chooses to speak in other ways, including with prophecies, including words of knowledge. And my my hope is that God will speak to you, to us. And He will do that in whatever way He chooses, but we will be able to perceive that it's Him talking and we will listen. So I'm asking you to pray that this week. Put this in your car, on your refrigerator, wherever, so that you can be reminded to pray that the word of the Lord to agape would not be rare, but it would be frequent. And that we would perceive it as Him speaking and that we would have humility to hear him and say, as Eli told Samuel to say, speak, Jesus, your servant hears. I want to invite our worship team to come up. As they do, I want to give us an opportunity this morning to pray that together. During this next song, if you will, as we're singing, voice a prayer to God that He would speak to us in various ways. He might speak to us this morning. Perhaps He's already speaking to you. We have a couple of prayer partners that are going to join us and just over here to my left. And I'm asking you today that if God is saying something to you, speaking something to you about your life, and you need someone to pray with you, You can come and receive prayer. Will you follow through on whatever He's put on your heart this morning? Will you follow through on what you might be perceiving as Him? Even if you have a small inclination, that might be God. Follow through. Following through with someone else is a great way to know. Or at least a great way to start pursuing whether or not it is God speaking. So let's worship together. Let's pray God would speak. If you want prayer, come and receive it about whatever God may be saying or whatever need you have in your life. Let us respond to Him and to what He has said to us. May the Lord bless us and may the Lord keep us for His glory.
now and forever. If you are willing and able to stand or to assume a posture of prayer and worship, please do so.